BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm producer Victor Wright, and every week we explore top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we bring you some of the best stories from the week. One of the ongoing stories we've been covering is the tumultuous economy, leading many to fear over a recession. As these recession fears continue, people are worried about their job security as companies are looking to cut costs. There are four kinds of employees that are most likely to lose their job during an economic downturn. Those are new hires, high earners, millennials, and recruiters and coders. To talk about who is most at risk, Oscar Ramirez is joined by Aki Ito, senior correspondent at Insider. So a workforce data provider called Revealio Labs looked at, you know, about 17,000 people who've been laid off since March. They looked at um, their LinkedIn profiles to be able to answer questions like, um, you know, how much tenure did the people who were laid off have versus, you know, those who escaped the layoffs? How much did they earn? How old were they? What kind of jobs did they perform? And what they found was really interesting because there were certain traits that people had that made them more vulnerable to these layoffs this time around. And new hires ended up being one of those particular ones. And, you know, we always hear that same, you know, that whole saying last in first out, uh, you know, then so the new guys on the job might be at risk here. Yeah, so the new guy is always at risk, you know, during a downturn, but this time they're especially at risk because of the very hot job market that we've had over the last year. You know, companies have been forced to compete just so fiercely for new talent that they've been doling out much higher salaries to these new hires than their existing employees. As a result, you know, because they're earning more, uh, they have more of a target on their back, so to speak, compared to some of the existing employees who are earning a little bit less at the moment. Yeah, and that's one of the themes that we had seen throughout the pandemic, right? The great resignation, people leaving for better pay, better conditions, better work-life balance, all of that. And there's this kind of theme that's running through all of these. We'll get to the rest of them right now. But that you know, one of the big takeaways is that if you benefited a lot from the great resignation, it's possible that you could be at risk just because of the way things have changed. So the next group of people, high earners, right? So this kind of is in 
the tale of the new hires, you know, a lot of people getting uh, a better salaries as they started, but even longtime employees, higher earners, when companies are trying to trim some of that out, that's where they look to first a lot of times. Right. I mean, you know, layoffs are always about uh, cost cutting and the way you cut the most costs is uh, by cutting the people who earn the most. So this is pretty intuitive. This is always what happens in um, recessions as well. When you look at um, a bunch of different occupations, there seems to be like about a $10,000 difference between the people who are laid off and everybody else. The people who are laid off seem to be earning about $10,000 more than everyone else. So that does go to show, you know, if you earn a lot of money at your company, then that puts you at risk as well. All right. This next group has never really had a lot of good luck, it seems like, uh, millennials. In the current round of layoffs, I think, uh, you know, other metrics, right? We're looking at uh, different things, uh, different data that we have here in these current round of layoffs. They uh, Millennials made up 79% of the workforce, but 94% of the layoffs. Yeah. So, you know, you're absolutely right that millennials have had it very hard over the last decade or decade and a half. You know, over the last year, though, they were really one of the biggest beneficiaries of this booming job market. They were finally able to get out of their low paying jobs and, you know, move into these uh, positions where, you know, they had better titles, better pay, um, better working conditions. Um, But because millennials really took advantage of this moment of, of a really tight job market, as a result, they are more vulnerable right now too. Gen Z workers, for example, they switch jobs a lot during the pandemic too. But because they're still so young, they're not earning enough to really make it worthwhile for companies to cut them. Whereas millennials, they're you know starting to earn quite a bit. And so as a result, they have much more of a target on their backs. This next group was a little interesting. So recruiters, obviously, right? You know, if companies aren't hiring, they're not going to need the services of those looking to help hire more people. But coders also figure into this. And when we're talking about startups and all sorts of companies handle, you know, the the people that are handling the back end of things, you would think they're some of the more critical employees that would be sticking around. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, software engineers, for example, tech companies tend to, you know, really hold on to software engineers until the very end because, you know, engineers are considered so core to what they do. Uh, But this time around, it does seem like software engineers have been overrepresented in the layoffs. And I think that really goes to show just how much these software engineers ended up getting overpaid during this great resignation. Um, Companies were just going so overboard and giving engineers such crazy salary offers that they're now kind of stepping back and thinking like, oh, we went too far. We can't sustain this. We, we can't afford this anymore. And so they're cutting a lot of their software engineers as a result. And, and you know, this is all not to say that all these people are going to be fired and laid off and all that, you know, but we're looking ahead at, at a possible recession. And when a lot of these types of companies were going through such rapid growth, right? Uh, you know, bringing on a lot of people, as you mentioned, hiring them in at higher salaries to because the, the labor market was so tight. This is unfortunately what happens when recessions go on. And, and so we're just kind of looking ahead. So if you fall into any of these groups, beware and maybe try to make some, some plans ahead of time to see uh, if you can avert some of this. Aki Ito, Senior Correspondent at Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. As children are returning to the classroom, schools are facing setbacks and learning loss due to the pandemic. Data from the Department of Education shows that nine-year-olds are behind in reading and math, with the sharpest decline we've seen since 1990. 
Districts that kept remote learning longer generally experienced worse learning loss. Currently, states are spending billions on tutoring, expanded summer school, and more individual attention for students to help make up for the lost years during the pandemic. For more on this and how schools are tracking progress, Oscar Ramirez talks with Scott Calvert, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. It has been apparent for a while now that the pandemic has caused a lot of learning loss. And some people don't like that phrase. They'll say it's actually unfinished learning because the kids, you know, they never they never had it to be uh, to begin with. So they didn't lose it, but they just never had it at all. And as you say, this recent federal data really kind of underscores nationally kind of where things are. And they look specifically at nine-year-olds. And yes, the reading and math scores both dropped. And for this story that, that I recently did for the Wall Street Journal, we wanted to focus on reading for that sort of nine-year-old, third grade, fourth grade group of of kids. And the reason is that there is just a lot of research that shows that if you haven't learned to read by the end of third grade, it's going to have potentially really long-term impacts on your future educational success, your career earnings, even the risk that you will be incarcerated at some point. And the way people talk about it is that, you know, until the end of third grade, you are learning to read. And thereafter, you're really reading to learn. Obviously, use reading for math and everything else, right? So the, this recent data just really put a, a punctuation mark on the fact that there has been a lot of loss. And the question is, okay, what, what do you do about it? States have known about this for a while. And one main thrust has been to really give kids more time with teachers, instructors, tutors. And so you've seen a lot more in the way of summer school or summer learning camps really sort of expanded, beefed up. And then you've also seen a lot more in the way of tutoring, especially, you know, low ratio where you have maybe one tutor for three kids and high dosage where it's not just for a few hours, but it's, you know, maybe 45 minutes twice a week for weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, in, in, in an effort to help get these kids you know, caught up as quickly as possible. Right. Yeah. And the reading part, as you mentioned, right, is so important because everything's built off of that. You know, you profiled a, a couple kids in, in your story talking about how, you know, they're behind in some of their reading and then they're struggling with comprehension. So then when it comes to math, another very important thing, right, that kids are having that difficulty understanding the word problems, which are, you know, a big part of all that. So back to right. what states are doing, they're pouring a lot of money that they're getting from the American Rescue Plan. So we got about $122 billion that was set aside for K-12 public schools, and at least 20% of that has to go to address learning loss. And so in that effort, a lot of states are beefing up those things that you mentioned, more tutoring, this summer school stuff, that individualized teaching to help kids make up all that stuff up. So tell us a little little bit of what we're seeing with some states, like what they're trying to do with their programs. Yeah. So, I mean, every state has taken a somewhat different approach, but I'll give you one example. So Indiana, for instance, last year, the legislature, they approved this $150 million grant program. And it was really aimed at these community-based organizations like the United Way. And they're offering, you know, in-person programs that have extended learning time. So that's that's one thing they're doing there. They're also creating this um, tutoring program, this incentive where they are offering certain families that meet income guidelines up to a thousand bucks, right, to enroll their kids in in private tutoring with a certified educator. So that's how Indiana's doing it. Then you, you go over to Tennessee and they have a really muscular tutoring initiative that they are using about $200 million from the American Rescue Plan, the federal aid money you referred to, to help pay for that. The, the state itself is also sinking a lot of money into that as well. And again, that's this sort of high dosage, low ratio uh, tutoring approach. In Texas, they passed a law where if a kid doesn't pass a certain uh, subject a topic on a standardized 
state uh, test, then they can get 30 hours of tutoring in that subject area. So there's different methods, but a lot of what it boils down to is this question of, of giving kids time and more individualized attention. And when I was in Tennessee recently, I went to a school outside of Nashville, and it was actually the first day of this reading tutoring program. And there were there were three nine-year-old girls from the fourth grade who were there with a tutor. And I think as you as you mentioned, you know, every kid has it has his or her own challenges or weaknesses, right? right. And in this case, you know, one girl was having a hard time. She was she was skipping words or sentences that she didn't understand. Another girl said, you know, she was really reading slowly and wanted to, to be able to sort of speed that up. And then another girl said that she just had a comprehension problem. She would read it and just not really understand what she had read. And so the hope is that over in the coming months and weeks that the tutor can can um, can help each of these kids make some serious improvements. And the, and the last part of this is all, uh, you know, we're putting a lot of money to these programs, doing everything we can, tried and true methods, new methods, whatever it is. The other part of it is studying if it's actually effective. As I mentioned, you know, some experts have said it's going to take years to make up the losses and it's going to take years to know if these things worked. So that's the other part of it. Education experts will, will basically say, look, you know, tutoring works, low, high dosage, low ratio tutoring, it works. But the, the difference, of course, is that we've never been in the situation we're in now with this pandemic that has just caused just such incredible havoc for for years now, right? right. So, so it's sort of uncharted territory. And as much as states want to know whether things are working in this context, they also don't want to wait. They need to sort of make their best judgment about what they think will help these kids and then study it as they do it so that they can make adjustments based on, on what the data is showing. And there are some places that are doing this. Like I'll give you one example. In North Carolina, they have a whole office of learning recovery and acceleration at the State Department of Education. And so they study the summer school program that had 250,000 kids enrolled in the summer of 2021. And they found, okay, this had small but positive measurable impact in both math and reading. So that's obviously encouraging results for them in that context. But, you know, when I spoke to the uh, education secretary in Indiana, she said, look, we're going to have to acknowledge that some of these things we do are going to be really effective. Some are going to just sort of help stabilize things and others just won't work well. And so the trick is, to really measure these things in real time to the extent possible, and then, again, make these adjustments uh, in in hopes of, of improving the efficacy. Scott Calvert, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no risk experience with pet friendly, stain resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud like comfort with high resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. 
It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard of quiet quitting? The movement began among office workers to just do the bare minimum and draw boundaries to help with their work-life balance. Many bosses and work coaches, however, say you shouldn't be coasting on the job. Other critics say it can help create an environment of laziness as other employees follow suit and also just do the bare minimum. For more on the criticisms of quiet quitting, Oscar Ramirez talks with Catherine Dill, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. There's sort of as many definitions of quiet quitting as there maybe are people who identify as quiet quitters. You know, for some folks, like you mentioned, it's just sort of coasting, it's phoning it in. You know, for others, it's saying I'm meeting expectations, but, you know, I'm working nine to five. I'm not lying awake at night, grinding my teeth about work-related anxiety. Work is my job and this is my life and they've drawn better boundaries. But Like you said, you know, there's been just as broad a spectrum of reactions as there have maybe been initial (laughs) definitions of quiet quitting, which ranges, yes, from career coaches and executives who say this is not the way to get ahead. This is not how to get what you want. This is not how to build a successful career to workers saying, what do you mean this is a name? I've been doing this for years. (laughs) This is just called having a healthy definition between work and life and not letting one overwhelm the other. Yeah. I mean, part of the problem, obviously, is the name quiet quitting. It implies I'm on my way out is what that implies. And for a lot of people, that's not necessarily true. Part of this whole thing that we went throughout the pandemic, uh, the great resignation, all of that was people trying to get that work life balance. That's why remote work became such a big thing. But now that we're going back and people are just feeling like they want to maintain that, what they might have held on to already, it's tough. So let's go with the obvious one, right? Business leaders, a lot of these uh, people are saying, you know, this is the worst way to do it. It can promote laziness. And you want people going above and beyond on projects and and different things at the workplace. It's going to make the company better. It's going to make you better. You know, it's that hustle culture. Let's work hard and get it done. And they say this is the complete antithesis to that. Yeah, I mean, and and some people have argued that it might be contagious as well. You know, if you've got people on your team who have their feet up, so to speak, and there's no penalty for that, what happens when your workers who are really invested, who are efficient, who are going the extra mile, look around and see that? You uh, guys got some quotes, I guess, from Ariana Huffington, who was talking about this too. And she said that, you know, I'd much rather somebody be upfront and said, I'm going to give you 100% when I'm working, but I have boundaries for my work-life balance. That's probably a better way to approach this than just kind of coasting on by. She drew a good distinction there that there is a difference between saying, I'm going to do the bare minimum and saying, I'm going to do this job, I'm going to give it my all, but then I'm going home at the end of the day, whatever that happens to mean, <laughs> literally or figuratively in this world of hybrid and, and remote work. And, you know, she also pointed out that even if you are just sort of happily coasting through eight hours a day, there's probably something you could be doing where you would feel more engaged and still be able to maintain those boundaries. Who knows if the overall kind of movement of this is to just do the bare minimum, right? It's hard to really know. As you mentioned, there's so many definitions of all of this. You spoke to some people, too, who say, hey, why wouldn't I do this? You know, I'll work my ass off. And then um, let's say it comes time for a work review. And they say, hey, well, they're they're just meeting the expectations anyways. So why would I go above, above and beyond if I'm not getting the recognition even when I do work hard? They're saying, you know, 
I've seen what happens when I kill myself at work just to be told, good job, that was the expectation. Why would you go above and beyond just to be told that that's fine, good job, that's it? And that's the argument that some workers are are really advancing. So where do you see this going after speaking to a lot of employees who are practicing the quiet quitting, the business leaders who say that's not the right way to get ahead? Where do you see this going? Because just work in general and this work-life balance have been thrown for a loop so much because of the pandemic and you know what's going on through all that. Where do you see this going? Yeah, you raise a great point, which is that it's tough to speculate on workforce trends right now unless you really enjoy being immediately proven wrong. But there's a few things that are important to point out here. One is that, you know, the labor market, the job market is still pretty advantageous to workers. Understaffing is still a major issue at lots of companies, even as we see layoffs bubbling up in particular corners, most places are still saying, I can't hire the people I need. And so workers do still have some leverage. And that's something that both employers who are angry about this and workers who maybe are coasting could find a job that they would like better, could demand those things that they feel will improve their lives in a next position should really think about. The other thing, which one of the workers I spoke with pointed out, is that this doesn't work for everyone. You know, one of the employees I spoke with, a communications professional, said she was really dissatisfied in a job and she tried this and she found herself just sort of constitutionally unable to do this. She planned to just clock in, clock out. And she said it made her more frustrated, more dissatisfied. Work became even less meaningful. And so she was only left with one option, which was to actually quit. And so employers maybe need to consider who are those folks who aren't just going to coast, they're just going to leave when they're unhappy. Catherine Dill, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm producer Victor Wright, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today.